Today on the Zabecast, the Nats' Ryan Zimmerman says thanks, but no thanks to a shortened MLB season. Will there be more? And what about any big stars? Pour one out for old Coach Bugs. Joe Bugle, the essential consigliere to Joe Gibbs, has passed away. Andy Poland joins me to pay our respects. All that plus a real-life version of Facts versus Volume. Your daily Kickstarter of Uncensored Me is locked and loaded, so buckle up and let's go! Oh, here we go! Tuesday, June 30th, 2020. Thank you for joining me and welcome to the last day of June. Ryan Zimmerman of the Nationals is out. Released a statement on Monday saying, uh, essentially, look, I'm not retiring, but I don't feel comfortable playing. I've got three young kids, including a newborn. I've got a mother who has multiple sclerosis, which would theoretically put her in the higher risk category for the coronavirus. So he is going to stay safe at home, as he says, and evaluate his options next year. Of course, that's if there is a next year for Major League Baseball. You never know when the next big pandemic is coming, right? But I think it's pretty safe to say there'll be another next year. The question is, will the Nationals still be interested in his services a year later? He did thank the organization for understanding. Joe Ross, pitcher, fifth starter, also said he doesn't feel comfortable. He is out. A couple other Nationals players may join in as well in not playing this year. And, you know, that's all their decision. That's, I mean, whatever. I'm not going to rip it. Uh, I'm just going to say, okay, I, I really hope you are literally not leaving the house for a long time, like for six months, like, cause that's what it's going to take basically to stay as safe as you think you are safe, but that's fine. Every player can make that decision. You know, Zimmerman has been Mr. National for a long time. He was going to be a platoon player this year at best. It was a one-year deal. The team just won the world series. You can't get any better than that. So. And, of course, the the pay wasn't going to be very much relative to what he has made before. It was a probably fairly easy decision for him to make because he was on the verge of retirement anyway. The big question is going to be closer Sean Doolittle. Sean Doolittle has been very vocal about concerns regarding the coronas, and his wife has spoken out as well via social media. It's one thing if a platoon 37-year-old first-base DH guy is – saying he's out versus your closer as you tried to uh, repeat as champs. Yes, repeat, I said. It's going to be a real season. There will be a trophy, okay? Just so you know. If he says he's out, that <laughs> that will be very interesting. And then we'll see if any other big-time star players in baseball say they're out. A handful of basketball players have said they're out. Mostly from non-contending teams, the only significant contributor from a contending team is Avery Bradley from the Lakers, who is stepping out because of, he believes, social justice issues. He doesn't feel right to play. Fred Van Vliet of the Raptors said about the NBA restart, quote, we all know the right thing to do is not to play, but it looks like he's going to play anyway. And then you've got uh, Wilson Chandler for the Brooklyn Nets, who has said he is out, and a, a one or two other guys around the league. Trevor Ariza for custody reasons. I think we're going to get most guys buying in. On the COVID-19 
update front numbers-wise, today was the lowest number of Monday deaths since March 23rd. Wow, 98 days ago. Lowest number on record with full testing capacity. It's new lows and deaths every week. Consistent decline week after week after week. Death rate is plummeting. Now the question is, when will states stumble into a different posture about the virus? I think I said this before, and I'll say it again. If I did, or if I, if I haven't said it, it'll be new to you. We stumbled into this thing unprepared. We're stumbling around without a real coherent or forceful plan. And we're going to stumble a bit more before we finally, wait for it, stumble out of the pandemic. We are like a drunk coming out of a bar trying to find which way the Uber is. And I'm not sure many other nations handle it much better. So we'll see. Dr. Michael Levitt of Stanford, who has, I think, been more right about this from the very get-go when it was very unpopular, when people were saying, you're crazy, had I thought the following perfect summation of why so many epidemiologists were wrong and why other voices should have been allowed at the table to have been heard. And he says basically it's because this is what epidemiologists do. They think if they can prevent an epidemic, they've done good. It doesn't matter the societal cost. They don't weigh other factors. So being wildly wrong on the dark side and scaring the shit out of people, even if it means, means uh, leads to horrific lockdowns that break the trust of the people with their governments, kick kids out of school, causes all kinds of psychological damage in that regard, doesn't matter to them. They just look at it like, well, better safe than sorry. Here's Dr. Michael Levitt in a recent Zoom call with other smarty pants epidemiologists, statisticians, theoreticians, physicists and other We have things. had uh, initially just a few scientists talking to each other on Zoom, not about the opinions, but about the data. What is the population infection ratio? What is the severity? Does this thing grow exponentially? Uh, there are some very, very simple questions. And it's true that the epidemiologists were always saying that we're not epidemiologists, but the fact is, is that Viral cases and deaths follow a time trajectory, and I think physicists and uh, theoretical chemists who understand trajectories are way better qualified. The epidemiologists made their normal error. Epidemiologists do not, they, they see their job not as getting things correct, but preventing an epidemic. So therefore, if they say it's 100 times worse than it's going to be, it's okay. Their mistake was that we listened to them. They said the same thing for Ebola. They said the same thing for bird flu. No one shut down for them. We should never have listened to the epidemiologists. They have caused hundreds of billions of dollars worth of suffering and damage, mainly on the younger generation. This is going to be a tragedy of, it's going to make 9-11 look like a baby story. This is much, much worse. I am not against lockdown. I am against stupid lockdown without considering the full picture, i.e. not just combating a virus, that is exactly as dangerous as flu, but also avoiding the economic damage that every country has caused itself except Sweden. We have really, really failed as a group. There have been smart people in Sweden, 
and that's about it. Germany is getting reinfected because they cut down too strongly. Uh, you know, the, the, the level of stupidity that's been going on here has been amazing, and it just required a little bit of discussion of smart people. I'm not saying no, I'm, I'm right, but I would like people to contour me on the details. Why is it not exponential? I can show you. Why is the case infection ratio this, not that? There is data for this. In other words, everything is data-driven, but people have chosen not to look at the data. Even in many places, the politics has infected the scientists, certainly in the USA. The politics has infected the scientists. Yeah. I mean, that is so well put. The data is right there. Even though it's noisy and messy and inconsistent, it's there. And we're living in a data-driven world where the data that Facebook has on us, the data that Amazon has on us, the data that Google has on us, they use it with devastating effectiveness because they're agnostic about any opinions regarding the data. They say the data is the data. But in this regard, the data on the coronavirus instead just becomes twisted and politicized. And people seem to want to ignore what the data is actually saying. Oh, and one more thing on our boy Fauci. Told you he was a fraud. There's a video out there of him in some briefing room, Capitol Hill, wearing his Nationals mask because, you know, he's a big Nats fan. He's got the mask on, and then all of a sudden, after doing an interview, camera's off, takes a look, boop, down goes the mask under his chin. Stands there for quite some time, mask off. And, and people still bow to this guy, like, oh, Fauci. I mean, come on. If you're going to talk the talk, and lecture us about masks, you better not pull yours down when you're suddenly like, oh, pull it down. And go ahead. Somebody make an excuse for Fauci. Come on. Send me the email. Make an excuse. Make a rationalization. Say, you don't get it, Zay, because he said they help, but it's not necessary all the time. Nobody was close to him. It's okay. Every now... Go ahead. Make that. I want to hear that. Because I know you're going to. I know a couple of you out there are going to do it. Fraud. Fauci. All right, let's go ahead and call Andy Poland. But first, I just want to mention, uh, I said, can you do it tonight, Andy, at 9? He said, 9 at the latest, please. I said, 8.30. I said, it'll be 20 minutes quick. You must go to sleep at sunset. Andy responded with, happy to do it. Side helping of shit. Not necessary. <laughs> He's so militant sometimes. I wasn't giving him shit. I just thought he might go to bed as soon as the sun goes down. Hello. You know, I was not giving you shit, by the way. I just was saying you must go to bed when the sun goes down now that it's summer. Do you? No, I mean, it, you know, it just depends. I mean, I was up late last night because I was watching the uh, Don Bandata. Oh, and, uh, on the decision. Yeah, yeah we got to talk about that. Yeah. We got to talk about the decision 10 years ago, uh, come July 8th. So we're not there just yet. But anyway, hello, Andy. Thank you for joining me today, as always. You know, I appreciate it. And uh, I didn't mean to give you shit. Hell, I'm trying to go to bed as early as I can these days. And being summer, you feel like a little kid going, I got to go to bed. It's still light out. 
I'd like to stay up, but I just get tired. You know? I, I, get know. I, so know. Like, I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. So pour one out for old Bugs. That that was a gut punch today to hear that he had passed away at age 80. Joe Bugle, architect of the Hogs, and really Joe Gibbs's right-hand man, is consigliere, right, during the glory years? Yeah, uh, and... And I was trying to figure out what the connection was, how they got together, and I really am not sure because I don't know. They must have crossed paths somewhere along the lines, but uh, that was somebody he brought here uh, when he became coach in 1981. Yeah, and uh, you know the whole line of the Hogs came from just mm-hmm. a throwaway comment when he said to the offensive line, all right, you Hogs, let's get on down in the pen and hit them sleds. <laughs> Somebody, yeah. though, picked up on that phrase, hogs, and ran with it. Joe Bost, Jeff Bostick said to me today, uh, he said, you know, he came up with T-shirts, did, uh, you know, uh, Coach Bugle, that said hogs on them, and right. all the offensive line had them, and that kind of built that bond. Yeah, that, and, and also George Stark, who was, you know, kind of the outlier of that group because he'd been there a while. He was drafted by George Allen in 1971 so he'd been there for 10 years the rest of them were all either rookies like uh well bostic was actually second year he'd been cut by philadelphia and they claimed him uh they had russ Grimm, who they drafted in the third round mark may who was their first round pick and joe jacoby an undrafted free agent all these guys coming in in 1981 and so as the older guy Stark, he saw a marketing opportunity, and he's the one that got them hooked up with the posters. You know, they they got like three thousand dollars a piece to go out in their jerseys to a farm and hang out with a pig, and they made a poster out of that. Right, and then there was the famous uh, Hogs Night Out where they put on tuxedos and sneakers and went to Georgetown. And had dinner and ran up a bill, you know, in those days of a couple thousand dollars and signed Jack Kent Cook's name to the check. Sure, (laughs) sure. (laughs) Things like that. And they were, you know, it was just really remarkable that these guys who were offensive linemen, you know, mostly faceless guys could become at least local and in some cases national celebrities. Yeah, and uh, they were the engine that drove the Redskins to multiple championships. Bugs went on to be a head coach both in Phoenix and in Oakland with basically no success in either stop and then came back to Gibbs 2.0 to be part of the Space Cowboys, as we called them, for the Uh second go-round. And Bugs actually hung around and was coaching under Zorn for the two awful, forgettable years of Zorn. Right. And then and then uh, you got Shanahan who showed up and Shanahan had like a different kind of blocking scheme for his offensive line. And at that point, Bugle was 70. So he just, you know, kind of tapped out at that point. But um, yeah, you mentioned the the lack of success. Um, All the coaches that came off the Bill Walsh tree. Yeah. Well, I mean, the guy, they, they, you know, a lot of those guys had success like Holmgren, Andy Reid, Mariucci, those guys. Right. Yeah. Mariucci. Uh, uh, nobody really did from Gibbs. I mean, you had Bugle, yeah, his, Dan his, Henning. His tree didn't really bear much fruit. Which does that mean anything? Yeah. Does it say anything? I, well, I, I think I think it, here's the thing that that I looked at it. The way that that Walsh did it. Walsh had a bunch of younger guys and came in and learned under him. Gibbs had older guys who would argue with him. And and those famous, you know, all night sessions that they would have uh, going over the game plan 
where Gibbs would say, we'd go till three o'clock. We heard the trash trucks. <laughs> it was time to give up. Right. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wake up. We've been sleeping in the office. Yeah. But, but, but uh, you know, Bugle would hold his ground. Like he, you know, they would argue about certain plays. And, and I think Gibbs liked that. He liked the give and take that he had from his older assistant. Rennie Simmons had been a guy with him uh, a long time. And then for the defense, he just gave it to Richie Pettibone. Yeah. He said, you run it. And, uh, you know, you're, you'll do a good job with it. And, you know, just kind of tell me what's going on here. So, you know, it really worked out well for him. It's kind of why Gibbs, I think, has been a successful race car owner as well. He's very keen at hiring good people and knowing when to delegate and get the hell out of the way. Yeah, yeah. And that's and, what and, he did and, when he was coach of the Redskins as well. So, uh, Bugs to me, just looked like and sounded like a football coach. Yes. You know? He had he yeah. he acquired as he got older that weathered coach look with his face, kind of like had a little bit of a Harrison Ford look to him. Incredible head of hair, <laughs> deep into yeah, his seventies yeah. and until his death, and just that attitude and that voice. You're like, that's a football coach. He was a Western Pennsylvania guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if he had a background and the father in the coal mines or anything like that, and played. Uh, football at Western Kentucky, and then worked his way up through the colleges, assistant coach in the pros. You know, before he became the Redskins offensive line coach, he was the offensive line coach in Houston when they had Earl Campbell in Love You Blue, which is another thing that made it kind of curious that Gibbs brought him along here when he came in in 1981 because he was planning to do Eric Coriel. Remember at the yes. beginning to throw the ball. Yeah, that that's what he knew so, as a coach. And then they got their asses kicked with their own five out of the gate, was it? Yeah. And he yeah. said and, and he said, and, All and right, so, I gotta change. And they started feeding El Rigo the football. Yeah, and and uh and they changed their whole attack, and that's that offensive line went hand in hand, and that's when, you know, those guys became you know, elevated and, and well-known, but yes, he was, he was a tough guy. And also uh, Joe Jacoby told me Gibbs, of course, never cussed, but Dad after he'd finish his, he'd finish his little spiel at the blackboard. He'd be followed up by Bugs who said, now I don't have a big vocabulary, but I know every curse word there is. <laughs> and he, he just, he right. just lay them all out. And, uh, and he said it was, they were a very effective duo that way. Yeah. Well, uh, Joe Bugle is part of the, the Redskin Camelot years. And, you know, we, we today when I had on Bostic, he told the story yet again of the time they ran 50, got nine straight times in a wind-down-the-clock defeat against hated Dallas to the point where Bostic said after about the fifth time running it, he leaned over at the line of scrimmage and told Harvey Martin, we like you so much, we're coming at you again on this play. <laughs> Yeah, he loves that. It's one of the and it's one of those stories that we've heard so many times. It's dog-eared and faded as a story, but we can't resist as Redskin fans putting another quarter in the jukebox, right? Saying, "Tell that story yep. again." And we don't have anything to replace it because I know, isn't that the hell of it? <laughs> we have no new glory stories to replace it with. <laughs> Fucking sucks, man. Sucks. Yeah, we're living off that. Uh, know, how many more years can you live off the eighties? You know, I don't know. You were talking coaching trees real quick. So yeah, the Walsh coaching tree bore a lot of fruit. The Gibbs tree, not so much. Interestingly, the um, the Belichick coaching tree has also dropped nothing but rotten fruit that did not grow. 
Everything from Mangini to Weiss to McDaniels to Patricia to Cronell. There hasn't been a uh, a Belichick success story yet. No, no, and and uh, you know it, it, you wonder is because he does everything himself. Um, you wonder if you know the approach that he has works well with the Patriots, but anybody who tries to imitate it someplace else, it doesn't work. You know, it's that would it's be my guess. Things. My guess is that the those guys say, okay, here's the Patriot way, and they go to Detroit yeah. or they go to Cleveland. Or they go to the Jets and they realize those organizations won't back that way of doing things. And they don't have the quarterback like Belichick has. And they don't have the rings either. You have the yeah. rings and the quarterback and years of success. That gets everybody marching in line. Yep, yep. And that that's that's, you know, an important thing. The other thing, you know, is is sometimes it's the personality of the guy, whereas Walsh was like a teacher. He was he was a, like an instructor, and some of these other guys are just not that way. You know, Tom Landry had a bunch of guys who got head coaching shots. I think Ditka's the only one that won a Super Bowl. So, mm-hmm. you know, just just different guys, different things. Yeah. Um, moving on to the Patriots, what do you think of Cam? Cam to the Patriots. I, I think they're going to win twelve games again, and I'm kind of pissed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he won, he won, what, he won 11 games with Matt Castle? Yeah. Who hadn't started a game since high school? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and he just, you know, he just sat back and sat back and sat back and said, you know, Cam saying, oh, I want to be a starter. I'm going to, a lot of people thought that they were going to wait and see if there was an injury. That didn't happen. So he gets a reset, really. It's like, uh, you know, if he gets, if he plays well, then the Patriots can sign him to a long-term deal. And, and if they decide they don't want to keep him or he doesn't want to stay there, maybe he'll play well enough that he'll get to sign a long-term deal someplace else. I think it's a smart move for both sides. Two unscientific poll questions today on my Twitter feed. One was, how many games do you think the Pats will win with Cam? 13 or more, only 4%. 10 to 12, 50%. 8 or fewer, 37%. And Stidham wins the job instead, only 9%. <laughs> Um, we'll see what shakes out. I know that the the stupid AFC East has been waiting forever for the Patriots to suck, and now they might have hit the reset button for at least one more year. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Here, uh, which would be very infuriating to Bills fans, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and what happens with the, the Brady legacy? That that if, if, if they Ooh. do win 12 games, Ooh. you know. <laughs> what if they win it all? With Cam, yeah. stranger things have happened, have they not? Yeah, and, and, and how how do you like Belichick? Maybe say it to uh, Brady. How do you like me now, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> I came up with a new word today. Let me know if you like it. Camboyance. It's his Ooh. flair of dressing after games. Sometimes yeah. an old woman babushkas, as you would say, <laughs> yeah. headscarves. Yes. You know that, that that kind of thing works well after a win. After a loss, it looks kind of foolish. It does, but he has it. 
planned out ahead of time, he's going to wear it come hell or high water, so he wears it even in losses. I've actually come to appreciate it because some of them have been so outlandish. I'm like, wow, look at that stuff right there. I'm a little bit shocked that so many sports fans see it as a, quote, distraction. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, as a, I don't as buy a that. middle-aged white guy, you know, it's hard for me to, to really give an objective <laughs> opinion about something like that. I don't give a you shit. Know? I literally think it does not matter. It's how you dress after a game. Who cares is what I think. The more important question is this. How is it that a former league MVP, 31 years old only, yes, he's got a shoulder injury, available for any price, open market, how is it that a former one slash one pick as well in Jameis Winston, 28 years old, in his prime, no major injury history, and having thrown 50 touchdowns, how, th- how come both guys have to essentially beg for a backup job and they don't get a shot somewhere else? It's a bad look racially, but I've got yes. some thoughts on the flip side of it. And then people threw into the mix that apparently Chase Daniel is making more than both those guys combined this year. Chase Daniel, to me, has had the most baffling NFL career I've ever seen. Oh, now, it's like robbing in broad daylight, this guy. Yeah. Now, the last time I saw him play with the Bears, he wasn't horrible. But he's spent most of his career not playing and just getting big contract after big contract to do so. Uh, they just like to have him around, it seems. You he's know, like, he's like the he's... guy that you want, but you never want to play him. You just want to go, yeah. he's nice. We just we don't want to play him because we know he's not that good. And he's tiny, which is amazing. I call him Shrimp Daniel. I know. He's 5'11 on a clear day, if that. He, he's not 5'11. Let me tell you something. You think when he's shorter I than 5'11? Super Bowls. Yeah. I always made it a point to go to media day <laughs> and try to talk to ex Redskins. So when the Saints were playing the Colts, and that's how long he's been in the league, for God's sakes. That was, what, 10 years ago right. when the Saints and Colts played in Miami? Right. So he'd already been in the league a little while. And I looked him right in the eye, and I thought, my God, this guy's an NFL quarterback. you got to be kidding me. So, yeah, he's, he's, that's been a remarkable thing, and I don't know why he makes that kind of money. With Winston, it was the interceptions and some off-the-field things that, that people were not, you know, uh, necessarily but you think uh, like warming up to you think with both men you'd say about cam yeah the shoulders banged up but we can manage it we, we we have doctors we can have guys fix it breeze had a major mm. shoulder injury he came back from it you think with winston yeah he throws mm. a ton of picks. Not everybody does well that's true but you, with winston you, you say he throws a ton of picks but he's still young secondly he was in a bruce arians offense that was risk taking and downfield pushing you could you could put mm-hmm. him in a better system it just seems to me like I would not have spent a draft pick and the money on Nick Foles that the Bears did. I would have easily taken Winston or Cam Newton instead. And it's right, unfortunate that, that he... Foles is white and these two guys are black. The way I reject any notion, though, that there is racism involved is because both guys were picked 1-1 and they were both heavily promoted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cam was a face of the league in his prime. And got all kinds of endorsements. Yeah, an MVP. And an MVP. And yeah. Jameis was able to grope yeah, yeah, a female sure. Uber driver, and the team stood by him. So I don't know what to make right. of it. I think there's all it takes is one dumb team like the Bears. The Bears have, to me, made, Andy, three of the worst quarterback decisions in a row I've ever seen. One was spending a lot of draft picks to move up one spot for Trubisky in a draft in which they could have had Mahomes or Deshaun Watson. 
That's number one. Number two, they spent last year to go get long neck Mike Glennon for way too much money. That experiment's <laughs> over. And now they're going for Nick Foles. God, they don't know what they're doing. The Bears, I don't think, have really had a great quarterback since Sid Luckman. <laughs> I, I, I mean, they, they, they really have a storied franchise that, that, you know, that's, I mean, you, you'd think you'd stumble onto one of them by accident. The they best, haven't. the best they've had is the gunslinger, Jay Cutler, who, when he was good, he was really good, but he was so spotty and so streaky. Most of the time he was bad. And when he was really bad, you wanted to punch him in his surly face. Yeah. And, and that's then his most. Been. Most famous, you know, incident was the the playoff game where he begged out with a knee injury yeah. that well, some thought he could have played it. I don't know. His yeah. knee was hurt, I guess. Who knows? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a. Uh, uh, I asked the question as well on the uh, on Twitter today. I said, "Why do you think it took so long for Cam to get a one year minimum deal?" Either a he's un- uh, teams are unsure he's still into playing. B there's lingering injury concerns. C he was being too choosy himself. Or D soft racism. Most people said lingering injury concerns. Only six percent said it was soft racism. For what it's worth, I think it's a little bit of everything. To be mm-hmm. honest with you, I, and maybe just a dollop of I don't know. White guys get backup jobs more than black guys. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I'm actually, uh, I'm sort of a Cam fan now. I'd like to see him do well with the Patriots, even though I was hoping the Patriots would suck this year. But I, I'm not going to bet against him <laughs> until I see it. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, the no, decision. No, Ten, the decision. Yeah. Ten years old come uh, July 8th. And there was a Don Van Atta piece on ESPN.com about it. There was an accompanying video piece as well. You said you were up watching it late last night. Talk to me. Well, it was on. Uh, it was only an hour, so unlike the the Jordan documentary, which ran two hours for five consecutive Sunday nights, at least I was asleep by ten o'clock. Right. But um, it it turned out to be uh, just a disaster. Now this is this is something that um, that was going to happen. LeBron was going to announce on TV where he was going to go in free agency, and um, it actually came from a suggestion in a Bill Simmons mailbag in two thousand and nine. Somebody wrote in and said, you know what LeBron ought to do? He ought to have a pay-per-view special to announce where he's going to go. And so Simmons takes it to the executives of ESPN and says, why don't we do it? Why don't we do it as a show? And they go, no, 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 no. Well, before you know it, uh, LeBron and his crew, and he's got uh, a group of advisors, guys he's known since high school. Mm -hmm. Clutch sports. He was one of them. And, and his and his agent Rich Rich Paul and mm-hmm. and another guy who's who's uh, like his manager, and they had put together a package that they were going to do this, and they were going to get Jim Gray to do it. Now ESPN wanted either Bob Lee or Stuart Scott to do it, but they said no. If this is going to happen, it's going to happen with our guy Jim Gray. Why Jim and Gray? They went to John's. I don't know, but what but for you've been in reason, the industry forever. You know Jim Gray, who's been in it forever. How does this guy keep getting these these uh, deals? There's there's an oiliness about him, <laughs> which 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 I don't really like, but but somehow he 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 manages to get himself. I mean, you he's think tight about with the Brady. He's tight with and, Jeter. He did the infamous Pete Rose interview at the All-Star game that went horribly off the rails. Right. He, he did the, uh, the, the the bite that you like to play where he talks <laughs> to Mike Tyson about his broken back. I mean, right. he's, he, he, he gets himself in the ring. 
And so they they said we're going to do this. And John Skipper, who was uh, running ESPN then, signed off on it. And they gave that group an hour of TV. And they didn't make any money off it. But it drew 10 million people at its peak, 13 million. And they thought, you know, the the exposure would be great. That's better than some NBA finals games today. Right, the the biggest non non event uh, uh, rating that they ever got was was that night. But I mean, they they had a great soundbite of, of David Stern. He goes, "Oh my God, it was awful. I'm taking my talents to South Beach. What is that?" <laughs> oh my God, I got to see that. Then Here, here's yeah. the, here's a little snippet from uh, the decision. The answer to the question everybody wants to know, LeBron, what's your decision? Um, and this fall, man, it's, it's very tough. Um, and this fall, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and um, join the Miami Heat. The criticism of the decision was instantaneous. He looks like a narcissistic fool. And lasted for weeks. If he had proper people around him, they would have never allowed him to do this. He's a 25-year-old kid who had a bad idea. Even those who had pushed the LeBronathon now ripped it. I thought it was the meanest thing an athlete's ever done to a city. And to do it on That's the Simmons. national TV show, I thought, was just brutal. Yeah. It was The Bachelor. I was waiting for him to hand Miami a Kornheiser. rose at the end. <laughs> I think a lot of people have that feeling like, ooh, this doesn't feel good. Yeah. The six hours of coverage. Jim Gray's 16 questions. Kids being used as props. Even LeBron's shirt. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. What a, what a scene that was. I think the end result, Andy, is nobody's tried it again which tells you it's been universally accepted as a bad idea. Well, here's here's the the proof in the pudding. He goes to Miami and he plays 4 years there and Wins they two titles. you know they followed but the, but it, the, one of the things they pointed out, you know, the not one, not two, not three yeah. the rally that they had when he got together with Wade and Bosch. They said at that point LeBron had accepted being the heel. He went from the most beloved figure in in Akron, Ohio, and right. in Cleveland, right. uh, to now being the villain, and he embraced it with that. But after winning two titles, he recognized, okay, there's unfinished business. I got to take care of it in Cleveland. I've got to deliver a title. By that point, he had Windhorse with him. Like every time he had a sniffle, Windhorse was there to, <laughs> to blow his nose for him. So he he was he was following him on every move. What does he do when it's time to go to Cleveland? He goes to Sports Illustrated, gives the story to Lee Jenkins. And they showed this this clip of of like this this group dumbfounded sitting around a table on the ESPN set reading the copy right off the copier of of his article in Sports Illustrated announcing he's going. And they're standing there, wind horses on that set too, and their their mouths are open, like, huh? How did this happen? All right, so I got to watch this whole special. This was on ESPN Sunday night. One hour? One hour. Okay. Don Vanatta, who's good. Really good, right? Great. Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. He, uh, you know, he's done some great work for ESPN. All right, uh, last question. I don't know if you give two rat's asses about this or not, but I'd say it's a very unique situation. Fox Television flips the keys to the U.S. Open Golf Tournament back to NBC for 50 cents on the dollar with seven years left of a 12-year contract. In your life, Andy, have you seen anything quite like that? 
Well, here's and you you would obviously know much more about this than I do, but when you say seven years left on a twelve year deal, meaning this deal was made five years ago, wasn't golf already off the big bubble at that point? Weren't they on the downside when that deal was signed? Well, Tiger was not playing five years ago, I right. think. Uh, and if he, he he was, he did play that year at Chambers Bay, and he was terrible. Topped the three wood on eighteen, and I think missed the cut comfortably. Uh, and then he still didn't play for a couple years after that. I think part of it is this coming fall, the U.S. Open is going to be in September, opposite Fox and its football stuff, and they uh, weren't going to be able to carry it this year like they normally do. So they, once they started talking to NBC like, hey, do you want it for one year? NBC might have said, we'll buy all of it off of you if the price is right. And that maybe got uh, some Fox executives licking their chops because many of the people that signed the deal might not be there anymore. You know that that's so interesting that that the NFL and and you you understand it, but that's the value of the NFL. It wasn't that long ago, and that CBS would gladly give up the four o'clock window during the U.S. Open tennis. You remember that that Pat Summerall, their number one announcer, would go do tennis instead right. of the NFL. That was amazing, <laughs> wasn't it? Pat's <laughs> off this weekend. Yeah. He's at Flushing Meadow doing Yvonne Lendl <laughs> versus Jimmy Connors. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, you know, he, he can't be on Broadway. He's doing a high school play. It just, it just didn't. It, but I guess that, that this shows you what the value is of, of uh, football on Fox that they're willing to, to punt the whole package. That that really is something. I mean, we're seeing a lot of you know market corrections like the, the record setting deal that Under Armour signed with UCLA. They did yeah. the same thing. They bailed out on that. So how know, how about uh, that, huh? Who would sign a twelve year yeah. deal at this day and age? Anybody? I mean, seriously. How can you see twelve years into the future, basically? I have no idea, but maybe that's, you know, maybe they knew to, to get it. Like, that was the original well, strategy that, for yes. Fox to get football. You know, that's that's where Rupert Murdoch made his network when, you know, they, they thought the bid was going to be, I don't remember the numbers, but the, but the bid that Fox had was like twice that what CBS was willing to pay. Yeah. And everybody said, oh, they're going to get their asses kicked. They're not going to make any money off that. And it turned out to be a brilliant move. The uh yeah definitely the 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 idea was let's gobble up properties let's get into the golf game and let's open up this beachhead and then they realized yeah you know what it's really not worth it for us and poor Holly mm-hmm. Saunders has since gone off the deep end I'll never forget that first year she was on the coverage and asked Jordan Spieth if he had an extra outfit packed for a possible Monday playoff even though he had just won the tournament duh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, you don't care. You don't care either way, and you're probably not going to watch much of the U.S. Open anyhow come September, right? Unless Tiger's in it. Okay. Tiger's Tiger's competing, but uh, no, I'll probably be watching. I'll hopefully be watching football. You know, they can play golf. Football's still up in the air right now. All right, Karen, settle down. That'll be football. (laughs) All right, Andy, always a pleasure. Thank you for your late-night stay-up. I'll talk to you next week. All right, Zane, take care. There you go. I didn't ask Andy if he is a monument guy or not. Is he in favor of taking down monuments, even those that maybe aren't? Actually, I talked to him about this last week with the George Preston Marshall. Not quite monument, but the giant plaque that was outside Redskins Park. I'm sure Andy is more like, eh, yeah, okay, whatever. There's a monument called the Emancipation Statue 
in downtown D.C. that a number of protesters said they want down. And there is a gentleman by the name, he goes on Twitter under Truth Conductor, and his name is Don Folden. He's a black man, and he dresses in period piece attire. He runs a company called DCBlackTours.com, as well as uh, DC but or Capital Buddy Tours as well. And he was explaining exactly why this statue should not come down. In part because, you know, it's kind of crucial to his business if he's going to be taking people on tours of Washington, D.C., showing them monuments, explaining where this happened, that happened. You know, sharing history, because that sort of is important, sharing history, I think. Um, But protesters are amazing in their ability to be shrill, hysterical, and utterly devoid of facts. Take a listen to this exchange between good old Don Folden and a protester who was just losing her shit over this. By the way, I don't know if he looks just like her. She looks uh, sort of white, maybe Latina. Who knows? Listen to the hysteria. She's literally stomping her feet. She's so angry. You are fighting. You two are fighting because divide and conquer. Divide and conquer has been. Why are you fighting me? So another guy comes in, another black gentleman who's got white hair. I, I think he is a damn good knockoff of Frederick Douglass himself, and he's trying to explain to this hysterical, millennial, probably white woman, even though she claims we look the same, why they don't want the tattoo, statue torn down. I'm not fighting you. I'm actually on your side. No, here's the thing. Look, here's the problem. Any voice that is dissenting, they go rejected. Any voice that's going to reject you, brother, any voice that, that, see what I'm saying? It runs. That's unbelievable. Uh, it's sad if you if you think about it too much, but I'm not going to worry about it too much. It is what it is. I wonder if during, say, the 60s, when there were you know violent protests in the streets over Vietnam and other stuff, were there hysterical children like this, or were at least the the women that are protesting were they? They might have been loud and and full of piss and vinegar, but did they make any sense? Did they at least not act like children who are coming apart at the seams when they found somebody who disagreed with them? I, I'm just wondering. Maybe maybe they were. Something says, though, probably not. Anyway, good on these men. And, uh, yeah, next time I decide to go on a tour, a uh, historical tour in downtown D.C., which is going to be a while for now. I'm going to let things simmer down just a bit. I'm going to make sure to look up dcblacktours.com or Capital Buddy Tours and, uh, and get that history taken in and support these guys for doing what they do. That'll be a wrap for today. Thank you for downloading. Keep your head up in all the madness. We press ahead. 
We cannot be divided, people. There's way more of us clear-headed, good folks out there that look around and shake our heads and say, this is fucking madness, and then go about living our lives, loving our neighbors, black and white, as if nothing can stop us. Don't forget, we've changed to Red Circle, the dying days, or day, this is it, the last day, over at Libsyn, so we've gone to Red Circle. Sign up there for Friday's uh, subscriber podcast, four days free, one day you got to pay for. It all helps to keep me motivated in growing this podcast, and I do appreciate it because quality content is worth a fair price per month. I pay it myself for a number of newspapers and music services and a few podcasts myself, and I appreciate your five bucks. 12 months for the price of 11 if you want to buy it all at once. Best of all, you get it delivered to just about any platform you like, so that's convenient too. Rate and review as always, and please our algorithmic overlords. Tell a friend as well if they like good podcasts. Have yourself a great Tuesday as we head towards 4th of July weekend, and we will see you tomorrow.